hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast at least once a week. We aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Sridhar. Uh, today, this is a really special episode 305. Um, it's extra special because this wasn't part of our normal scheduled lineup. So I'm going to apologize in advance. If you listen to the next three episodes, the numbers and the titles and everything will be correct. But what I say in the intro won't match the number. That's because we inserted this because it's topical and something that has recently been discussed um, due to a couple of factors we're going to talk about. And we inserted this. We wanted it to be topical. So we're releasing this um, right at the beginning of August. We're recording this um, today at the end of July and July 30th. And um, so when you listen to those next couple of episodes, you're just going to notice that the titles don't quite match, but, but that's part and parcel of what we're doing here. So for this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about to gender compensation gap for ophthalmologists. Um, and there was a recent, we've talked about this before, but there's a recent paper just published in ophthalmology that we'll talk about with that very same title. Dr. Sarah Reed, uh, one of my favorite people is going to join us to discuss this. And she's on the line now. And what we're going to do is we're going to also discuss a couple other things that came out recently. Um, there was uh, a couple commentaries that are going around the community that kind of tie into this paper. So remember that um, you can claim CME credits for uh, episodes such as this one by clicking on the link in the episode description. And um, you can find a list of all relevant financial disclosures as well for every episode in the episode description. Joining me now on the line, Dr. Sarah Reed from Honolulu, Hawaii. Sarah, welcome. Hi, Jay. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. You got to hear my whole intro because I'm going to try to do this all in one go. So again, you don't really, people don't really want to know how the sausage is made, but usually when we do the podcast, I record that first part later. So Sarah was probably super confused. Let's me talk and talk and talk. Um, so let's, let's talk about a couple of things. So, so the reason that first we got this idea was um, there's some discussion going around the community. We've heard from a bunch of colleagues um, just to get background. So, and this is not a unique event and this is not an, we're not trying to castigate anyone with this, but to bring this to light as a conversation because people are talking about it. So there was recently um, a podcast done, another excellent ophthalmology podcast hosted by um, Dr. Josh Molly, which is the Helio Ocular Surgery News Podcast, where he brought on um, John Pinto. And, and John's a very respected person, at least based on what I've seen in publications. He's been a practice managing consultant for many ophthalmology practices over the years with lots of experience. And it was actually a very useful series. Um, it was part two of a three-part series talking about, you know, finding a job and practices and negotiating salary. And this was an episode specifically on contract negotiations available online for free. And there was this comment that, that Mr. Pinto made pretty early in the podcast where he referenced that, you know, not everyone were, quote unquote, I'm quoting now, gonzo workaholics like him and Dr. Molly, that more and more, uh, you know, fellows value work-life balance. You know, women, for example, may need to take care of children, may want to work part-time. And then they moved on to other subjects. So, and again, this is not to create, this is not a cancel culture kind of thing, like, oh, they shouldn't have said it, this, this shouldn't have been said. But, but it created some discussion, Sarah, in the community, because it kind of feeds into some of these assumptions that have been made for years. And they're casual, kind of not meant to be malicious assumptions, but they actually carry real world import in terms of what sort of things happen to women in ophthalmology who are looking for jobs 
And this was a podcast on contract negotiation. And we're going to tie this in the article we're going to talk about. But first of all, what were your first impressions when you heard about this commentary? Well, I think, you know, it's always hard when this is almost sort of a throwaway comment at the beginning of a podcast that wasn't even focused on this. But it's always hard when you hear a sort of a statement that seems to imply, even if that wasn't the intended message, that um, women maybe don't work as hard as men or um, don't contribute as much to the workforce because there's sort of a prevailing myth about women that they won't work as hard, that they choose to not work as hard, that they choose to work less, and that this is sort of used to justify um, the gender pay gap um, that's sort of well-known that, you know, that sort of statistic that women tend to make um, 80 cents on the dollar or something like that. And that the reason why is because women prioritize home life. And I think the problem with that statement is it's some women do, some men do, some women prioritize work-life balance, some men do. Um, It's really across the board, but I don't think that that is a true statement about women. And it's actually sort of harmful when you try to think about ways to have parity in compensation. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's interesting. You know, again, like you said, I don't, it it was such a throwaway comment. It's such a small part of actually a really excellent discussion uh, that they covered in detail about contract negotiation. But the fact that came up so early in that discussion just kind of reflects, you know, how this is such, again, a really common theme. Um, You know, we're going to get another opinion to weigh in, you know, Basil Williams, a uh, friend of the program for University of Cincinnati, also on the line. Um, you know, Basil, when, when you hear that, you know, you have somebody mention this, and I mean, maybe we, we should kind of translate this to real life. And a lot of this stuff is anecdotal. I guess the question is, have you heard commentary like this before? And we're not mentioning specific names, but have we encountered this? And have you seen this, whether it's with your trainees or or along the way, this sort of assumptions about anyone, it could be women or anyone kind of looking for, for a job. Yeah, unfortunately, this is, uh, this is a comment or a type of comment that's thrown around casually as if it's an understood thing. And it does happen much more frequently than, uh, than I would care to admit. I think it's really difficult because it seems in some way baked into the culture and the understanding of this is just the way it is. Um, I will say that I have been fortunate enough to be around enough mentors who consciously or unconsciously would not promote this and would also be very aware of the commentary and would speak against something like that. But it's definitely something that I hear uh, in passing fairly frequently. Well, and I think that the kind of maybe the most bizarre part about the comment is it was made in response to a question about negotiating power uh, for new graduates. And the point that Mr. Pinto was making was that it's actually um, a really good market and good negotiating power for um, new graduates because um, there's an unmet need for ophthalmologists um, in a lot of communities. And it's interesting because there's a lot of reasons why there's an unmet need. I mean, we've got an aging population um, that has an increased demand for different procedures. There's more procedures available. So um, there's more patients that potentially can have treatment available. There's a baby boomer generation that's retiring. And so 
not only that, but they haven't increased the number of ophthalmology spots in quite a few years. And so you sort of combine all of this. And oddly enough, the reason that he comes up with for there being a physician shortage is because women have babies. And I think that's the part where you sort of go, well, there's so many other more obvious reasons. Um, why is that the one that you're coming back to? And what is even the point of having that be a reason that you're giving for there being a physician shortage? Um, Cause I don't think it's actually based on any data and yeah. even more oddly is that he's talking about negotiating power um, and then doing it in such a way that in a lot of ways he's taking away negotiating power. Yeah. I, yeah, I think again, and I think that I feel badly because, and I don't know him personally, and I think, again, it's, it's, I don't think that the things he said are constructive in terms of helping anybody going forward fight ongoing stereotypes. I think they are instructive, not just about his own beliefs, but about some themes that many people hold to be true, whether they express them or not. And unfortunately, that are acted upon. So again, I think it's useful to talk about his commentary and less about the specifics of what it means about him, but more and like we've both all been saying, more what it means about the community and, and kind of what the culture is like, even in 2021. You know, Sarah, to your point, it is clearly not the reason for the shortage of ophthalmologists. Um, and, and again, there's a little bit of chicken and egg slash self-fulfilling prophecy component to this, right? Like you know, if you're a rural practice who has never hired a woman successfully and you go into that encounter and you bring up part-time and you bring up the fact of child rearing or you bring those things up early in a way that's not constructive, then maybe you will have a hard time recruiting a woman and maybe they will gravitate to urban jobs that tend to have more other women and have a track record of doing that. And if you offer a woman only a part-time job or a lower lower salary, as we'll get to in this article, and they take that job and then they're working part-time or working on a lower salary, then you can't turn around and use that as evidence and say, well, look, you know, women make less money and they work less. Well, yeah, because either you offered that job or you pigeonholed them into it when you were in the position of power offering that job. And I think this is important at every level, right? This is important as attending, looking at our residents, we shouldn't pigeonhole people into careers and specialties. We should allow them to be adults and to pick what they want to do and support them and try to get them to that end goal. And when people are looking for jobs, obviously we, as an employer, you may have something you have in mind, but you shouldn't change that entirely for each person. And you have to be, con it, it, you have to be conscious of your unconscious bias because you may not even realize that you're doing it but you may have two people who line up for the same job, but based on their gender or the way they look or the way they dress, which, oh, maybe, I mean, maybe the way they dress is relevant. If someone shows up in a suit like Basil Williams and someone shows up in shorts and flip-flops like me, you know, some clown. So, but, but the point is that your unconscious bias will result in kind of giving you the result that feeds back into your unconscious bias. So, um, and Basil, this kind of goes into the thought of just, unconscious bias in general. I mean, this has been discussed at other levels by people way smarter than me. You know, there's all these scales that are developed. We're looking at one of these 
there's these scales you can take. I think there's like a, a Harvard um, test you can take to see what your level of unconscious bias is. And it's probably relevant for all of us to kind of look at that, especially, you know, we all, even though we don't think of it, all of us in practice are in some degree a position of power when we take care of patients. And at some point we're going to be involved in hiring decisions for the next generation, whether we are now or later. And that unconscious bias really comes into play in determining the future of our field. Yeah, I think this is something hugely important. And I think um, it is something easy to shrug unless you're conscious of how these things can affect you, uh, you going and you won't notice the effect that it's having on other people, especially uh, the, the higher position you have and the more impact you have on other people, the more important it becomes to pay attention to those things because that's the power to impact people um, in, in different ways. And so um, I think especially in, in the of situation looking at it when your natural assumptions come into play in terms of how people are treated um, but it kind of meant sets a standard or sets an expectation that really has long-reaching ramifications so um, I think implicit bias is something that we need to understand better about ourselves so we can appropriately um, interact and 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 those things that are affecting us we can at least mitigate by being aware of them um, but especially important when you're in a position of power. So let's dive right into this article. So the title of this article was Gender Compensation Gap for Ophthalmologists in the First Year of Clinical Practice. Um, and it, it's a fascinating article because um, we had talked about it, you know, a little while ago. It was published online in 2020, November, but, but I think it's important to come back to it, right? And just revisit it in the context of this comment. And again, just to, to remind people what this article looked at, it was looking at uh, it was a, a survey of doctors that finished residency within the last 10 years and they collected information on their gender and their fellowship status state and their salary. And it looked at kind of what were the base salaries with bonus in the first year. Very, very simple. And they would account for bonus. They had a little multiplier they did. They actually had a pretty good response pool. Again, 300 and 84 respondents out of 684, uh, excuse me, 384 respondents finished the survey, slightly more women than men. And the big take home, remember women got paid about $33,000 less than men. And then once they kind of did their additional analysis, it was 27,000. But these were significant differences. Um, and these were still significant, even when you accounted for kind of the days and gender really predicted income in every analysis. So we had talked about, Sarah, this article before, and then we're coming back to it because it's the best data point we have to back up the anecdotal things we're talking about and to try to make this discussion a little more scientific. But I guess my thing would be, well, what, what, are, what are solutions? So we've talked about some things about conscious bias, about being aware of this problem. I mean, what are things that come to mind for you for would be ways to kind of solve this issue? Because they talk a little bit about negotiation in this paper. Negotiation is part of life, but there have to think be systemic sort of changes when you have a discrepancy such as this. Well, one of the things that I thought was interesting in the paper um, was their commentary on negotiation. So um, they said that's you know, obviously that's sort of a hard thing to measure, but 
in the survey, there wasn't a difference in between gender as to whether or not there was an attempt to negotiate, um, but that males reported a significantly higher rate of successful negotiation. And so um, I think that sort of points to, there's sort of also this idea that women don't negotiate or they don't advocate for themselves. And so uh, with almost sort of a bias, like you, you only get what you ask for. Um, and I, I don't necessarily think that's always true. I think it's sometimes true, oh. um, but at least in this study, it points to the fact that women try to negotiate, but they just aren't as successful. And that maybe because there's an implicit bias that their work is less valuable and um, that as a partner that they will be less valuable um, because there's sort of this background thought that um, women don't prioritize work or can't prioritize work in the same way or at the same level. Yeah, I mean, and I think that to that to that point about negotiation, it's also sort of like if you don't think the negotiations are going to be successful, you're probably less likely to negotiate, right? Like, I'm not going to go and ask for something if I, I think there's absolutely no chance they're going to say yes. And so, if you've already gone through a lifetime or you know from experience that you probably aren't as likely to get what you want, then yes. Maybe you don't negotiate as often. And like you said here, they controlled for that. And it shows that, that they aren't as successful. And you can say, I guess on the other side, well, men are just better. They've learned more skills in their life to negotiate. I mean, but it takes two to tango. So what is the other side responding to that negotiation? Are they responding more positively to negotiation from a man and less positively in terms of giving concessions to negotiation from a woman? Um, and again, I think we all can remember anecdotal examples of that it's nice to see the science sort of bear that out. And this isn't the most scientific paper, it's survey-based, but it's still helpful to kind of refer back to it. Um, Basil, you know, I, I recently watched Silicon Valley on HBO Max, which is a great show. This podcast is not sponsored by HBO or Silicon Valley. But there's a great scene, it's got to be season four or five, where T.J. Miller's character um, is working with his two female um, bosses and he proceeds to explain mansplaining to them while not letting them talk. So at the risk of two men talking about a gender issue, which is relevant to men because a lot of times men are in decision-making powers. What do you think are kind of best ways to kind of address this systemically? You know, we, and Sarah talks again about the negotiation part of it. I mean, what about transparency? Like that's usually not a business strategy for a practice or a university, but do you think that greater transparency could help here or would it just be more depressing to see sort of the differences that are there and it may not be enough on its own. I don't know. Yeah. So I, I think there's probably a lot of uh, potential fixes for this situation um, or at least things that might move the needle in the right direction. So uh, transparency is definitely one thing uh, from a negotiating standpoint um, if other people have been hired in the practice recently, asking to see their contract uh, is something that can be very helpful because that way you don't get a contract that is significantly lower than someone that has started recently. Um, and I think this is actually something that's important because 
you don't have any idea what someone else has been offered. And, and I definitely know stories um, of people who have been offered significantly worse contracts than people who are hired in the, in the recent past. And in those situations, they, uh, gender was a factor or at least was the specific example. So I don't know if it's consistently a factor, but, but in those cases it was. So I think transparency makes a difference. I also think the idea, and, and this is something that's probably a little bit beyond um, where we're ready to make changes as a culture, but probably is something we need to think about is the way we focus on um, child rearing and family raising, the way we look at maternity leave versus paternity leave, the kind of expectations that we still put on women uh, from, a, from a family perspective is such that whether you're working or not and what level of responsibility you have at work, uh, and we've seen this a lot with COVID, a lot of times the woman is bearing the brunt of some of the family responsibilities. And so I think if we wanna make changes in this, not only do we need to work on things with contracts, be aware of our implicit bias, have transparency, make sure that when people are negotiating, we're actually uh, able to listen in good faith, um, but we actually need to kind of change what our cultural expectations are and make sure that we give appropriate opportunities and time for parenting uh, between both genders. So that way the expectation will not just fall on the woman. Yeah. What do you think, Sarah? Uh, so, I mean, I agree completely. Uh, I would say, um, you know, the Doximity came out with their 2020 physician compensation report and showed that they're in medicine as expected, there's a gender wage gap, but that it increased significantly during the pandemic. So hmm. um, it's not surprising yeah. to see some of these um, systemic problems getting worse sort of in these crisis moments where women are sort of recalled at greater numbers at higher percentages from the workforce um, to help mitigate changes that are happening at home. Um, I think, you know, you sort of asked what my knee-jerk reaction was like to the, to that initial comment from Mr. Pinto. And um, you already, you already had your knee jerk, your knee already jerked. You don't I'm get a second. Knee. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess sort of to Basil's point, it's, it can be frustrating to have this sort of thought that like women aren't working hard enough when in fact, the women I know who are also raising children, you know, you know, like you pump to and from work, you pump during your lunch break, you do bedtime every night. Like, it's not that you're working less hard at work, you're just working harder all the time. And, and that's sort of the part that can get frustrating because if to Basil's point, you know, sometimes it can just feel like, it can just feel frustrating to have that be seen as a weakness. And instead of, it being perceived as a strength. I mean, it's, it, it's a frustrating na narrative to be promulgated, right? And, but to your point and the devil's advocate from the purely business-minded practice manager, who a person like Mr. Pinto is advising, <laughs> they, just, they just care about the productivity in dollars and cents. And maybe that is not the correct metric, even though that seems to be the most logical for perhaps trying to make money. That's not enough of a metric on its own to value all the things that a woman brings to the practice besides surely the RVUs that are produced or the revenue or collections that come in. Because there are other metrics 
for example, that show outcomes of surgery, quality care, not in ophthalmology specifically, but in other fields of medicine, which show that women can have better outcomes and shorter hospitalization stays than men in the same sort of field. And like you're saying, there's all the added sweat equity that's being put in, and you're not even accounting for the advantage of the diversity of thought, right? So, so maybe part of the issue is you're tying compensation completely, tethering it to the thing that seems to make the most logical sense, but you're not accounting for all the intangible things. This is like, you know, like both of you would appreciate this, but this would be like almost like making every athlete's contract completely statistic incentive-based, right? But you don't pay Tom Brady for the number of passing yards he gets in a football game. You pay Tom Brady because of the other intangibles he brings to your team so that you can win Super Bowls for franchises other than the New England Patriots. So, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I had to throw that. <laughs> but, so, I don't know. I don't know what you think of that, Sarah, but like, but like I, I think it's interesting you brought up that point. Those things are not going to be valued based on the current compensation models. I guess the point I was trying to make was that while doing that, there's no dip in my productivity. Like that doesn't, I can do that without it impacting my bottom line or the bottom line of the practice, having only dealing with dollars and cents. You know, like if you look at the number of patients I see, the number of calls I take, the surgeries I do, um, that that isn't impacted by my family choices. And I think that that's true for a lot of women. And I don't think, I think if you looked at ophthalmologists, probably the number of female ophthalmologists and male ophthalmologists, they probably have kids at about the same rate. So we're all trying to have work-life balance and um, I do think millennials do care more about that and prioritize that. I do think that's pretty common across um, our generation, um, but I don't think that's unique to women. And I don't think, and I think the, the idea, I mean, yes, you do have to, in a lot of cases, physically have a baby and you may have to take time off because of that. But beyond that, um, I, I think there's plenty of women and a lot of examples where there really isn't a dip in productivity that you're working full time. And so that's where I think that there's sort of, there's this background voicing, but if you have babies, you're not going to work as hard. But I, I don't think that that's true or needs to be true or has proven to be true. I think that's just sort of a myth that kind of gets perpetuated. And, and, and this has been referenced by both of you earlier, child rearing responsibilities are being split more and more so I think it would have been a fair statement. And again, maybe people would rephrase they had a second opportunity to say, as you said, there may be more people inclined to work part-time. I don't think it's, it's, it's fair or constructive to put that burden on women. And, and, I, and again, I think it's, we've all said this, I think it's dangerous because I think that it just continues this fight. And I, I, I face this, I feel every year you know, I either have a female fellow or someone who reaches out and I'll, and I'll have male fellows and, and I'll compare sometimes the, the deals that are, are given to me often from the same practice. And it's shocking how different those interactions can be. And at the same time, it's not shocking because it's so common. And I think that we just, I don't know, I think the overall take home from this podcast is it's, 
it's the fact that it's become so casual to become a throwaway at the beginning of an interview like that that's become something that isn't even the big point of that podcast is just it and i shouldn't even say become the fact that it is because it's been this way is just really sobering and, and something that you know makes it's a little sad i think i think it's a little sad and it shows that we still have a long way to go um in getting where we want to be um I don't know, Basil or Sarah, if you have any additional thoughts on, on this issue. Uh, well, I would just say to that point, I, I agree with you. I think this was a casual statement made at the beginning of a podcast. I, my guess is that a lot of this wasn't his intention or even to imply wasn't his intention. Um, but I think kind of your point's a good one. I, that's part of the problem is that it's easy to make casual statements like this because for people who already believe it, it reinforces it. And for people who don't believe it, you're just yelling into the wind. Basil? Yeah, no, I, I just think that it's something that um, because it's a comment that was, that, that, that can be such a throwaway comment, it is really, it, it just, it makes me think more about being conscious of what I'm saying and what I'm thinking and what those things actually mean and, and the potential impact that it has on people um, and, and being aware of my own biases uh, in, in a much more tangible way. So um, I think at least for me, this is an opportunity to pay attention to it, uh, learn from it, be a better person uh, um, and keep this in the forefront of my mind um, especially as I'm working with students, residents, fellows, uh, to make sure that they're able to advocate well for themselves. I need to be uh, aware of this also. And, and I am glad that I have an opportunity to uh, work with a number of phenomenal people and um, listen to people like Sarah get worked up about stuff and tell me about it and tell me about why I'm wrong about stuff because it allows me to be a better person. So, um, so I think this is kind of one of those opportunities to do so. Who says amateur retina podcasters don't work hard? Here we are finishing up. We're not going to tell you, tell people what day of the week it is at 2.15 a.m. Eastern time. Dr. Sarah Reed, Dr. Basil Williams. Thank you for joining me. Sorry for outing people on your tremendous social lives outside of the world of retina, but we're showing the people that we care and that's what really matters. <laughs> uh, thanks so much, Jay. Thanks a lot, Ross. Take, Take care. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. It's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 305 episodes, including this one, can be found there sorted by category. In addition, you can find links to subscribe and get updates on the latest episodes in your email inbox. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter at Retina Podcast. And you can subscribe in your favorite podcast app, the Apple Podcast or Android Podcast app on your mobile device. Um, we love getting feedback, and this was kind of a last-minute impromptu episode and a topic we thought was important. But please feel free to send things along if you think it's something we should discuss or you want us to discuss something more, let us know. You can reach us in multiple ways by clicking on the contact us link on our website or emailing us directly at retinapodcast at gmail.com. Many thanks to Dr. Sarah Parker-Reed Choi and Basil Williams for joining me. I'm kind of on short notice for this episode. Thanks to Dr. Louis Kai 
putting this together, as well as the rest of our team, Dr. Angela Chang, Dr. Mike Minacasa. And thank you, listeners, for what you do on a daily basis, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire here each week. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. Feeling. This is straight from the cutters.